Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Welcome. Thank you for being here this morning. Just to let you know kind of what we've uh, decided to do as a local church is, uh, is expository preaching. And, and what that is, it's a, it's a big word, but what it means is we are going to teach through the Bible book, uh, book by book, verse by verse, okay? And this is how the Bible has been taught for many, many years in the church. It, it was just probably about maybe 30 to 40 years ago that it started uh, moving more topical. And so the problem with, uh, with preaching topical is there are so many things in um, Scripture that if you're just doing topical studies, you'll skip over and you never get into. But if you go verse by verse, book by book, uh, book you are learning precept upon precept. There's, there's built-in repetition. You're learning the Bible as a whole. And, and so what we have become here are students of the Word of God. And so uh, at times this may feel a little bit more like uh, you're in a, in a college uh, you know, classroom setting. Um, I would just say dig in and, and become a student and, and make the best of it and let the Word of God transform you. And that's the whole point. So before we, we begin uh, in God's Word here, let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds and reveal to us uh, the truth of your Word. Lord, we know that you prayed, Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. So there is power, transformative power in, in the Word of God. And Father, we submit to that this morning. We lay aside every... Uh, Every uh, presupposition, Lord, any speculation, uh, any imaginations that we have, any uh, humanizing of, of God, Father, we lay that all aside and, and, and we submit solely 100% to the truth of your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 this morning as uh, we have uh, had a couple weeks now where we've laid a foundation. The first week, uh, Colton did an excellent job of... Um, of laying a, a foundation, giving us a knowledge of the background of the city of Corinth and what it was all about, kind of, um, you know, just really a wicked city where there were all kinds of uh, people that were uh, passing through there because of trade routes. And then last week I gave you a, a background on the Apostle Paul and uh, why he was an apostle and uh, what it means to be an apostle and also that he was called... Uh, by Christ, appointed by Christ, and called by the will of God. That was the authority that uh, he went out in in his missionary journeys and, and his uh, time planting churches. Okay, So this morning we're going to pick up there in verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So again, um, just to give you a little more background, Paul was constantly having to deal with other teachers and other leaders in the church attacking him and his credibility as an apostle. So we, we see him reassert himself as an apostle in the epistles over and over um, because he was constantly being attacked by the, the Judaizers, okay? And then there were others within the church in those early days who would call into question uh, his legitimacy in other ways, okay? They were trying to cast doubt on his teaching or they would uh, twist the truth and say, don't listen to what he's saying, listen to what we're saying. So you see him even calling people out by name saying, these guys are not of God, they've, they've given themselves over to another gospel, okay? They were trying to position themselves as leaders above him and, and of course uh, gather followers of their own. And as we continue to see throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, um, human nature, you know, the way people just act, the way we act in our flesh, that was alive and well in the early church in those days and, and in that, especially in that church in Corinth. Uh, men triangulating for power within the church, uh, twisting the words of Jesus, twisting the words of the apostles, twisting the words of, of Paul, uh, compromising by falling into a mentality like the whole license to sin mentality. I can do all the things that the world does and, and I'm still free. Uh, I can still call myself a Christian. That's absolutely um, not true. And then, of course, um, in the case of the Judaizers, returning 
to the letter of the law, saying, hey, you can't be a Christian and not be circumcised. So, so actually uh, preaching and, and trying to uh, move the church back into the, the law, back into those old customs and traditions of uh, uh, how they used to practice, okay? And um, essentially mixing the law and grace, uh, which is a very, very um, uh, dangerous thing to do when we begin mixing the law and grace, okay? Um, Paul again, felt it necessary to re, uh, reaffirm himself often that he was in fact called by Jesus himself. Jesus appeared to Paul. And we believe there are possibly up to six different times that Christ saw the resurrect, or that, that Paul saw the resurrected Christ. Uh, and, and so Christ chose Paul. Christ sent him out. By, in the authority of the will of God and, and equipped him to do everything that he was supposed to do. And, and of course, this was something that Paul was con, uh, constantly reminding people of, not to be braggadocious, not to say, hey, everybody, look at me, I'm hot stuff, okay? Um, because we can, we can sometimes read the words of Paul and think, wow, he's kind of being arrogant. But he wasn't being arrogant. He was, again, constantly reaffirming himself as, I am God's man, I am in, I'm not saying anything from me, from my own heart, from my own opinion. I am, am speaking to you the very words of God, okay? So he was anointed as, or appointed, not anointed, uh, he was anointed too, because uh, we're all anointed if you have the Spirit of God, amen? Uh, but he was appointed as the final apostle, specifically to the Gentiles, and it was predetermined that it would be him by God's will. Does everybody understand that? Give me a nod or an amen or something out there. Okay, now we can move on. Verse 1, continue. And he says, and our brother uh, Sosthenes. Now, Colton shared a little bit about this gentleman a few weeks back, but in Acts 18, you can thumb over there if you want and, or make note of it. In Acts 18, verse 17, a man by the same name was the chief of the synagogue, um, and he was beaten by the Gentiles when the Jews were rioting and they, they basically seized Paul and carried him to the preconsul, uh, who was the head of the judgment seat at that time, and they demanded that he do something with Paul. Well, of course, um, he, he said his name was uh, Galileo, and at the time he said, look, I have nothing to do with this, let him go, and this enraged the Jews, and so I think they turned on their, the guy who was in charge, and they started beating him, and, uh, and that's kind of what happens. Well, so the Acts 18 uh, Sosthenes, it seems, was the leader of that, that riot or that uprising in that moment, and uh, so um, what we see here is kind of a neat story, and I think it would be just like God to do this that uh, Sosthenes was the leader of this, this Jewish uprising that had seized Paul and took him to be beaten in prison and potentially even killed. And then God takes that very man after he was beaten down and, and converts him into a follower of Christ. And we don't know for certain, uh, but again, that this is the same guy. It there could have been two guys with the same name. But I believe that this is just like God to do something like this. The very man... Who, who was responsible for, for attempting to kill, uh, you know, Paul there in that uprising that God converted him and, and brought him to faith, okay? Now, again, uh, just a little review about how the Corinthian church got started. Um, as Colton mentioned a few weeks back, the, the church at Corinth was a strategic geographical location, a, a perfect placement for a church because of all the trade routes that came through that uh, isthmus there, okay? It cannot be overstated, however, what a challenge it was going to be to plant a church in Corinth. And the reason was because they were absolutely wicked people, just wicked people, okay? Um, Colton mentioned it'd be like trying to start a church in California. So um, <laughs> anyway... Uh, just at the depths of paganism, debauchery uh, that took place in that city, 
This was a melting pot for various cultures, various pagan religions, and so they were mixing gods and idol worship and all of this stuff. And the Corinthians loved their lifestyle. They did not want to let go of the comforts of their life. Many lived in the flow of the wealth of that great trade city there, and they enjoyed the trappings and belongings of uh, that lifestyle and everything that came with it, right? They were comfortable. They had everything they needed. And as almost always happens when a society enjoys such comfort is they turn inward to pleasing their own flesh through things like sexual sin, greed, gluttony, you know, the lust of uh, the lust of pride, the lust of the eyes, or the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. It all stems from, from that root of sin. But let's get down to brass tacks. Let's really get down to what they were really doing. They were worshiping themselves. They were worshiping themselves. They were worshiping their comfort. They were worshiping their worldly pleasure. It was more important to them than God. Okay? And of course, worshiping false gods. Um, gods of convenience, right? Gods that don't hold you accountable. Uh, gods that allow you to do really whatever you want to do. The one true God doesn't allow you to do whatever you want to do. There are uh, particular, um, you know, things set up within the parameters of being a, a Christian that keep us safe in Him. And when we step outside of those and we uh, we get into a life of sin, then we are actually putting ourselves at risk, okay? As we'll learn later on, uh, and Colton again mentioned, he did such a good job a couple weeks ago, um, that Paul turned people over to Satan. Like, the only hope for this guy is that he hit rock bottom. And so I'm turning him over to his sin, I'm turning him over to Satan, that he might be just buffeted, that he might be beat down, and then maybe in that humility he will turn back to God. So for those who were part of this new church arising out of the wickedness of that city, it would be a whole new way of life, okay? So we got to keep a couple things in mind as we consider the instruction and the sometimes kind of scolding manner that Paul deals with that church there at Corinth. The body of Christ, the church, was only years young at this time. See, we don't have an excuse We've got all of a few thousand years to look back in church history and see mistakes that were made and how it's gone wrong. And there were very dark periods in the church when it shifted into the power of men and, and men having control over society and, and men keeping the truth of the Word of God from uh, the people. And of course, we had what was known as the Reformation where all of that shifted and, and Bibles began to be printed and spread everyone, everywhere and people could pick up a Bible and read it for themselves. And, and this brought on the Age of Enlightenment. This brought on the, the Renaissance, uh, Renaissance when the light was, was uh, shined all around the world and then there began to be great breakthroughs in technology and medicine and, and science and all of this stuff, all because the truth was given back to the people. So the churches been responsible at times, the church, and when I say church, I mean there are, there are organizations that consider themselves to be the church, but don't get that confused with God's true church, the remnant, the people who actually serve Christ and are devoted to Christ and actually devoted to Scripture itself. So the church was only years young at this time, and qualified leaders were in short supply. The supernatural occurring... Uh, in the form of prophecy, speaking in tongues, uh, often in, in the form of healings, and so on, were absolutely necessary during that time for some various reasons, okay? Um, first, to establish the authority of those in leadership, as well as to validate that what was being said was absolutely 100% from God, okay? These signs and miracles and wonders, as we've studied recently, was to validate that what was being said was revelation from God, okay? And it was not fabricated by men. God has always let His people or given His people a way to know for certain that what they are hearing or what is being taught is actually from Him. We are not supposed to just take people's word for it. That's why I get really uncomfortable when people start saying 
that God told me this and God told me that. Well, I don't know if God told you this or told you that or not. I don't know that. I can't confirm that. What I can do is pick up my Bible and read it and see what it says. That's between you and God. If God told you, then fine, right? That's, that's on you. But don't expect me to, to fall in line or do what God has told you, okay? I will go with God's Word. That has been confirmed. And so, therefore, I will, I will hold to that. I believe it is genuinely from Him, okay? So we don't have to take people's word for it today. We have the Word of God. If you want to hear from God, if you want to hear God speak to you, pick up the Bible and study it, okay? Uh, don't listen to the voices in your head. There's, there's really no way to differentiate uh, in the, the thoughts going through your head what is from God and what is not. Because guess what? All the thoughts are in your own voice. They all sound like you. And what does Scripture tell us? That the Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it alone is what divides the things that are of God and the things that aren't. You have to go to the Word in order to be able to even validate what you're thinking God is telling you is even true. So when you think you hear something from God, you go to the Word of God, and the Word of God will validate. If it coincides with the Word of God, fine. If it doesn't, it's not from God. Pretty simple, right? So that's, that's, that's what we need to know. You, here's the thing, you get to hold God's voice in your hands. You get to hold the Word of God, His, His actual speech, His voice, you get to hold it in your hands. It is static, it is unchanging, you get to study it, every single word, every period and every comma, every exclamation point, it's there for you, it is, it is set in stone, if you will, and we can study it and know what God has said, and nothing is left to the imagination. It's enough. It's sufficient. That's all we've got to do is trust His Word. Back then, y'all, they did not have that luxury. They couldn't hold the Bible in their hands. It had not been put together yet. It had not been canonized yet and delivered to the saints. So if you can imagine, there were all kinds of people saying all kinds of things and doing all kinds of things that were fabricated by men, trying to triangulate and, again, take positions of authority. And one really, really way, uh, easy way to make people think you're super spiritual is by saying, well, God revealed this to me or God told me this. And then we can't question that. They didn't have any way to, to be able to validate that. We do, okay? So there were all kinds of shenanigans going on, right? All kinds of tomfoolery. I'm going to think of how many different words I can think of, like hodgepodge of monkey business, okay? And the mischief and hijinks and, I don't know, Tommy Rot. Not Tommy Rot. I've had that too, Tommy Rot, and so forth. So basically there was a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion during that time, as we will see uh, in this book as we study it, because things were just getting started there was no instruction manual yet, okay? They were just having truth revealed to them for this new age of the church. So they would make up their own rules or they would revert back to what they knew before in their former religion and what they used to practice. And to some, they would revert back to their former wicked lifestyle because that's what they knew and they were comfortable with it, okay? So... In the next line, Paul makes their identity very clear. He wants to clear all of this up and let them know for sure who they are. And here's what he says. To the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So first of all, notice that he did not say to the church, at, uh, he did not say uh, to the church of Corinth, to the church of Corinth. He made a clear statement whom they belong to, and he said, to the church of God. You are the church of God who just happens to be placed in the geographical location of Corinth. Do you understand? The church does not belong to a leader or a building or a particular city. Man, the church is meeting all over the world faithful followers of Jesus Christ, and it belongs to God. We are His possession. He bought us. He purchased us 
with a very costly price. He, he, he spilled his own blood for his church. Those who are part of his true church are precious to him. And, and might I just say this, when you have someone in the church that you don't really care for very much or they just annoy the socks off of you or whatever it happens to be, maybe you need to think of them the way God thinks of them, that they are precious to Him. That the person that you're struggling with embracing, Christ shed His blood for them and they are precious to Him. Therefore, they should be precious to you. That's how we have unity and we show love for one another in the body of Christ. And then he attributes to them a description and a name. He says, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. To those who are sanctified. Now, this word sanctified in the Greek there, uh, it's, it's Strong's number 37 from Hagios. And look at what it means. He is attributing this to them. To make holy, to purify or consecrate, or to revere, to be in a revered position. Okay? So this brings up a question that a lot of people uh, think about. Are we sanctified the moment we put our faith in Christ or is sanctification a process over the course of your life only to be perfected when we stand before God? Well, the answer is both, but one is positionally and one is in practice. Okay? Let me explain what I mean. It has to be understood from God's perspective. From eternity to eternity, He sees true believers as positionally sanctified. God knows whether or not you will spend your entire life and be faithful and whether or not you will wind up at the end actually serving Him for your entire life. Whether or not you are actually saved is not a mystery to God. It's a mystery to me. Some of you, I have no clue if you're saved or not. That's a joke, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but God knows. That's my point. God knows. Uh, God sees it as a done deal, okay? The reality is that if we are truly His, that there is absolutely nothing that can remove us from His hand. If He truly has called us, He gives us everything that we need, that we personally need to follow Him, and He will be faithful to sanctify us until our time on earth is done. So God sees you positionally because you are in Christ as sanctified, even though in practice, in the outworking of from the day you were born to the day you die and stand before God, that hasn't been completed yet. He still sees you as positionally sanctified, which is really cool. Um, turn to Jude real quick. And look at verse 24. Jude, verse 24. Jude, verse 24. It says, Now to Him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. It seems to me here that this is God doing a thing and not you doing a thing. He is able to protect you from stumbling keeping true believers from falling away, that is on God. It is a question of whether or not God is actually able to keep you. And if you're a true believer, He will keep you. He is able. So you have to ask the question, do you believe God is able? Now turn to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit, soul, and body be kept complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 24. If there's any question in verse 23 who this is going to be on, look at verse 24. Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will do it. All right? So if you are a true believer, keeping the true believer from falling away is on God. It is a question of whether or not, not only is He able, but is He faithful? Is He faithful? God's Word tells us He is. We see here He does the calling and He is faithful to complete the doing. So positionally, if someone has been set apart by Him, then He is both able and faithful as Paul states in 2 Timothy 1.12, we too can be convinced that He is able to protect 
what we have entrusted to Him until that day. Do you see this theme, this recurring theme? So Paul was clarifying this truth to these true believers in Corinth, that he sees you as sanctified positionally. So he was putting that out there, throwing down the gauntlet, that this is who you are, okay? And if you are a true believer, your life and actions, your words and your deeds will reflect that you are sanctified. There's no question about it. And these Corinthian believers were living in such a way that called into question whether or not they were true believers. Because in some cases, Paul said, they were doing worse things than what the world was doing. So were they true followers of Christ? And Paul's saying if you're a true follower of Christ, you are positionally sanctified and your life should reflect it. He's making this case. He sees you that way, so live like it which means we submit ourselves to Him in everything and we let go of things in our lives. We grow in maturity. You shouldn't be the same today that you were 20 years ago. You should be growing in the Lord. You should be growing deeper in your love for Him. There should be mile markers in your life where you say, yeah, I used to do this, but you know, the closer I got to the Lord, I just let that go. It wasn't important to me anymore. There are things like that that matter that matter along the way. So Paul drives it home by giving them a name, referring, them, referring to them as saints by calling. God called you to be saints. So uh, unlike you know, uh, the Catholic Church, a saint is someone who is uh, dead. You have to be dead. And you have to have performed, I think, at least two miracles. Like they have this, this thing, that, and then you're declared by the church as a saint. Well, that's not what... God's Word tells us. Paul calls them all. If you are called by God and you, have, uh, and you have accepted the message of the gospel, you are a saint. That means you are a saint. And to be a saint, it means that you are sanctified. And nevertheless, even though they were uh, acting un-Christ-like, un he charges them with that title. And that connects them to God's holiness. You are a saint and you are connected to God's holiness. Your life should reflect that, that you love Jesus and that the Lord is the most important thing in your life. That should be very obvious to your family. It should be obvious to everyone around you. And if it's not, you're just playing. You're just playing games, all right? So he's saying at this time to the church at Corinth, he's saying, I know you're new at this, but this is who you are and you aren't the only ones. You... you Church at Corinth, you are the stewards of the faith. And there are others, other believers, other followers of Christ that are counting on you as well. And then Paul connected those in Corinth to all of the believers everywhere who call on the name of the Lord. He's saying it's not just you. There are many, many believers out there who have put their faith in Christ, making certain that they were a part of a much bigger glorious picture in the grand scheme of things, that they were just a part of the body of Christ. Let me also point out that we are stewards of that same body of believers that started so long ago in those early days of the church, connected to true believers today, but also connected to all those believers throughout history, which is an amazing thing. And we can get a little arrogant these days with our technology and, and all of the comforts that we enjoy today, and we can disconnect from the church of the past as if they were stupid and they didn't get it. But we're enlightened and we get it, right? No, folks. They've been around. They gave their life blood. Many of them were burned at the stake. Many of them were crucified. Many of them were killed for their faith. And we take part of, in that. We are part of that glorious tapestry that God designed from the beginning. We don't disconnect from them as if they were unenlightened idiots and they didn't have the knowledge that we have today. No, we are a part of them and they are a part of us and we are all in Christ, okay? And we have a responsibility to steward the proclamation of God's Word well. It is in our hands now. We're carrying this thing now, the body of Christ. And, and I know I probably get annoying to a lot of people because I'm constantly asking questions. Is that cultural or is it biblical? Are we doing this because we're just cool now? 
and we have all the technology? Or are we doing it because that's what the church is supposed to do? Connecting us to the church of history, to those who gave their very lifeblood for the faith. And so we can very easily just dismiss them as if we've got all the answers now. And that's why I've turned my heart and the heart, uh, the, kind of the focus of this church back to Scripture and back to the orthodoxy of the church in the past and saying they've done it for this long. They believed it enough that they would lay their lives down for it. Maybe we should recenter on what is most important. Because who knows? There may be a day that we have to face something like the Christians in Afghanistan are facing right now when they either have to deny their faith in Christ or die or watch their children die or whatever the case is that they're dealing with today. On this very day, they're making that decision. And yet, we enjoy the comforts of living in the United States of America and rarely even have to think about those kinds of sacrifices being made. I think we really need to consider those things often. And if we're not praying for them, we need to be praying for them, not only them, but for all the Christians out there today who are facing that decision. So, the church is His and we belong to God. And then Paul in verse 3 uses a common greeting in their day. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, grace we know is undeserved favor with God and then peace flows from that grace. And those were two very common things. So grace was a... A, a, a Gentile greeting, a Roman greeting, and peace was the Jewish, shalom was the Jewish greeting, and so he was covering all the bases when he said that, okay? And our peace flows from the fact that we are in Christ. Our peace, the peace that passes all understanding, the peace that we have flows from the fact that we know that we are in Him and that we are eternally secure in our faith in Christ, okay? So if you are in Christ, do you have anything to fear? Do you have to fear the sword? Do you have to fear uh, you know, wickedness or, or evil in, in heavenly places? Do we have anything to fear if we are in Christ? Scripture tells us absolutely not. We are eternally invincible. We are protected in Christ, untouchable in Him. That needs to be in everyone's heart. You need to understand that. And when you understand that, no matter what happens in this life, you can face it knowing that God allowed it to happen. It was His will. It may not be what I like, okay? But He knows all and He is sovereign and He is able to turn everything around for His good. And that's a promise for those that love Him, okay? And that's exactly what Paul gets into as he begins to unpack this scripture, the benefits. It's as if he has a backpack on the table, right? Um, and he's saying, because you are a saint, one who is called by God and set apart from Him, you are called to fulfill His mission in the world and He has given you all of these different things, this, this backpack full of, of a spiritual blessings that you can use, equipment that you can use in your life to keep you uh, walking that path of righteousness and keep you in the faith. And again, He is going to equip you if He calls you. The point of this entire letter to the church at Corinth was the necessity for the church to lead a pure and holy life godly lives. It's no different for you and I. Our, our purpose and point is to lead godly lives that point to Christ, that connect us to His holiness. And the foundation He's laid to build His exhortation upon us is this title that He's given us and that He gave them. He called them saints. And you and I are saints as well. In verse 4, we begin to see Paul taking things uh, out of this saints backpack, right? These, this equipment, if you will. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. He gave you His grace. The first benefit He unpacks is the grace of salvation. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a moment. Verse 5, that in everything you are enriched in Him. In everything, in everything. Does everybody know what the word everything means? In everything you are enriched in Him, in all speech and in all knowledge. You have the mind of Christ. The things you say are edifying to those around you, those you love, those you have impact upon. And the things that come out of your mouth are honoring to God. We honor Him in everything that we say and everything that we do. And I know that's not always easy, but that's the goal. 
You don't have to arrive there today. You have to be moving in the right direction. Can I get an amen? That's the point. We're moving in the right direction. Verse 6, just as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Now both of these words mentioned, given and confirmed, grammatically are in the aorist tense. Let me explain what that means. It indicates that it was an action completed at a specific definitive point in time. So it is has given, okay? And it is to give or I put or I placed. And then when you look at the word confirmed, it is uh, to confirm, to ratify, to secure, to establish, to guarantee, uh, and to stabilitate, right? To make stable. It's established. It's firm. It's not going anywhere. He gave you this grace of salvation and He also confirmed it in you. It's something that He did And when you truly, if you truly put your faith in Jesus Christ and there was this transformation that took place and you are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, there's a change in you. There's a transformation that begins to take place in you. And He has confirmed it in you. That Spirit seals you until the end. He pours... uh, pulls more out of the backpack in verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, if He's called you again, He has equipped you, you're not lacking in anything. It may not be your list of all the things I want for Christmas, okay? He's going to give you exactly what you need. And you utilize whatever He puts in front of you to the best of your ability. And whatever is beyond that that you think you need, He says to you, My grace is sufficient for you. You have my grace, and that is enough. You, I will give you everything that you need. Beyond that, trust me. That's exactly what Paul did when he prayed three times, and God said, My, or, my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. Okay? Verse 8, He will also confirm you to the end, blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see this recurring theme again, that you are confirmed, you are sealed unto the end, blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So once again here we see His calling, His confirming to the true believer that He is both able to keep you until you stand before Jesus. He is faithful to do that. Now look at what it says again in verse 9. He says it again, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is able to keep the true believer and God is faithful to keep the true believer. The question to the church at Corinth is, and the question to you and I today is, are you true believers? Are you true believers? I'm not trying to make anybody doubt their salvation unless, of course, You're not saved, and then I'm trying to make you doubt your salvation, okay? Bottom line is, folks, it's eternity. It's eternity at stake. And we're not not playing games. You do not know the day you will leave this earth. Are you ready to stand before Him? Are you covered in His righteousness? I want to talk a little bit about the grace of God today because there's there's a lot of misunderstanding out there within the body of Christ, and it's so easy to slip into these fall into these ditches in the church, okay? And I want to identify a few of these today. Um, People get a little bent out of shape sometimes when we talk about issues of salvation, okay? I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to get bent out of shape. I'm not getting bent out of shape. I'm just going to read what the Bible says, okay? And then you guys can read what the Bible says. And then if if you uh, have a conflict in what I'm saying, then we can sit down and we can talk about it, okay? But let's read what the Bible says. Um, He gives grace to the true believer, all right? And we have to consider three things that cannot coexist with His grace in in the life of the believer. First of all, I'm going to throw this in because this is a no-brainer. We're talking about true believers, all right? If you are involved in habitual sin or rebellious sin in your life, it is impossible for you to be a true believer. It is impossible. That's not my word. That's the word of God. That's what the word of God says. All right? But it's vitally important that we understand grace itself because if you get off in your doctrine of grace, then you're actually getting into a false gospel. 
All right, and that's why we need to understand that. If the church understands anything, we ought to understand salvation and the grace of God. Okay? So we either believe that salvation is His doing, His calling, or we believe that our salvation is what He has done plus what we do and what we have done. There's really no way around that. Let me explain. Uh, we, can, we can adopt a doctrine that says, uh, I can do something, and if I do something, even though I'm saved, I can lose my salvation, okay? He called me to this salvation. He gave me this salvation. The Bible says He confirmed in me the salvation, and He sealed me. And so the question to me has always been, well, was this person a true believer in the first place? If they walk away, I believe Scripture tells us that if they walk away from the Lord, that if they were of us, they would not have gone out from us. That if they were a part of the, the, the true believing body of Christ, there was no way they could truly walk away because it's on Him to keep the believer. He has confirmed us and sealed us. And, and if I have to do something to keep my salvation, then that means... It's Christ's work plus my ability to keep things copacetic and then I'm adding to His grace in order to be saved. Does that make sense? If I have to do something to keep it, right, then that's adding to His work. Now let me explain. First, grace cannot coexist with guilt. Grace cannot coexist with guilt. Right? This is the mindset that I have to be perfect because if I mess up at any point, I might lose it. And I don't know where the line would be. I've asked folks that before. Well, what's the line in losing your salvation? Like, is it telling a lie? Is it murder? Like, where's the line? If you're going to lose your salvation, where's the line of losing your salvation? Because sometimes we want to tiptoe right up to that line, right? Uh, and, and that's why I think that's, that's a, a very good question to ask. But for some, guilt becomes the guardrails that keep them on the right, the right path, at least the perceived right path, right? By, but, but listen, here's the most important thing. To be a genuine, true follower of Jesus Christ, walking in perpetual guilt is not the way. Walking in perpetual guilt is not the same as being free in Christ and having freedom in Christ. And... It was for freedom that Christ set you free. You are supposed to be free. Your mind is supposed to be free from guilt. If you have guilt, there's a problem. If you're allowing guilt to be what drives you and keeps you on the right road, then there's a problem, okay? Grace allows the newly converted sinner to let go of every sin that they've ever committed in the past. This is really important to understand. So the, the most terrible, wicked person, Hitler could have come to know Christ and, and all of the things that he had done, as terrible and horrific as they were, he could have come to know Christ and his past sins would have been forgiven, okay? And in that, there is no shame, there is no condemnation, there is no guilt. You do not have to look back at your life in the past and think about what you did before you were saved and it bring issues of guilt in your life, okay? Now, here's where it gets a little uncomfortable for some. Grace also allows for the true believer to stumble in sin today. I'm not talking about leaping or diving into sin, into rebellion and wickedness, okay? I'm saying it allows for the true believer, the true believer, to stumble into sin today and even stumble into sin tomorrow and even stumble into sin 10 years from now, okay, next year, whatever. And because the Bible says Christ died for sin once for all. His sacrifice covered all sin, past, present, and future, okay? And the consequences for my sin have already been paid for at Calvary. So whether or not I committed them today or whether or not I commit them 10 years from now and stumble makes no difference. He paid for that at Calvary. Those sins are covered as well, all right? The question is, do you then believe that's license and say, well, if my sin's covered, then I can do whatever I want. Paul said, absolutely not. I would say, what's wrong with you? But I, but I didn't get to write the Bible. Paul did. Okay. So uh, I can fall on my knees. Listen, this is incredible. I can fall on my knees in true gratitude and not in condemnation. Do, when I repent and I, and, I, and I cry out to God, is there guilt? There is... Um, Humility, there is brokenness, but it's not condemnation and guilt. It's brokenness. 
because I disappointed my father. I, did, I, I dishonored his, his sacrifice on the cross, okay? I can fall on my knees in true gratitude, not in condemnation, and I can say, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you that you have done this for me. It, it is so undeserving. And I know even now, when I keep messing up over and over again, I thought I had a handle on this. I thought, right? I thought I had it licked. And still, I'm an idiot sometimes. I can get angry. I can, I can say things I shouldn't say. I can do things I shouldn't do. Thank you, Lord, for loving me and paying the price for that sin. And even now, that sin is covered. He died for it at Calvary. We do not need to pick that back up and put that guilt on our shoulders. It's paid for. He says, I am gracious. I give you my salvation. We can't go back to that mindset that if I make one wrong move, right, then he just strips it away. That would not be a gift of grace. Do you understand? It's not a gift. You say, hey, I'm going to give you this, Colton. Here's this awesome gift I'm giving you. Oh, that'll be 35 bucks. That's not a gift. Do you understand? So if God were to offer you his grace and then you say, and then he say, oh, but you have to do everything just right or else I'm right, that's not a gift, is it? It's not a gift. So we have to understand that His grace is a gift. It's not an exchange, all right? It would be conditional then, and you would only get His grace if you qualified for it. That's not the free gift of grace. If you fall short of God's requirements, right, in that mindset, then His grace can be stripped away. That's not how it works. And you shouldn't live your life under that kind of pressure and condemnation, okay? So here's what's important to understand. The very second you add a requirement to receiving His grace, then it becomes an exchange based on merit and no longer a free gift. And that's the second thing, that uh, grace cannot coexist with human merit. It cannot coexist with human merit. Okay? Um, here's the deal. You guys know this, but we need to talk about it often. Every, it's okay if every Sunday morning we talk about the gospel. A person cannot escape from the consequence of their sin on their own. They cannot do anything themselves to atone for the sin that you've committed. This leaves each and every one of us this morning in a very dangerous, eternal predicament. Our personal sin has condemned us. Jesus told Nicodemus, they're already condemned. You sit in your condemnation. Like, we're not judging the world. We're not judging you because the way... We're recognizing your, your position. You're already judged. You're living in sin. You don't know Jesus. You don't love Jesus. So therefore, Jesus said, they are already judged. They are already condemned. And unless something happens to, to change their citizenship from this broken, messed up, sinful world to the citizenship of heaven, then they're in a very, very bad eternal position. Okay, And because God is just, He must condemn and punish sin. Okay, His wrath has to be present. He can't be love and not be wrath. It's impossible. Because if He doesn't punish wickedness, then that means all of those who have done what was right then have to live eternally with all of those who are stuck in their wickedness and their rebellion. So he has to deal with the wickedness and rebellion. God must punish sin. And Scripture also tells us that each of us are appointed a day that we will die. We all are not guaranteed the next breath, right? We don't know when it's going to happen for any of us. And if we step away from this physical reality into the one that comes next, which is a, a spiritual reality, the real reality then we're in big trouble if we've done nothing to rectify our sin, to pay that sin debt um, or allow Him to, to pay for that. Romans 6.23, if you'll turn there with me. I'm going to wrap it up here in the next few minutes. I might have 10 more minutes so you guys gird your loins and hang in there, okay? Romans 6.23. You've heard this a bajillion times. <clears throat> For the wages of sin is death. That's what you're owed. For the wages of sin is death. Your payment for your sin is your physical death, but more terrifying than that is that 
you face the second death, which is eternal separation or, or the wrath of God for eternity. The wrath of the Lamb, uh, Revelation says. And while Romans 6.23 declares the payment for your sin is death, it also offers the solution and it says that the only way that penalty can be removed, the only way your pronouncement of condemnation can be reversed is by the gracious gift of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it states that second part of the verse. Christ alone satisfied the requirements of God's wrath. He took your wrath upon Himself on that cross, the wrath you deserved. And it was a gift. The God-man divinely provided a way for us to live eternally in the presence of a holy God. If we do not put our trust in the God-man, if we do not put our trust in the man on the middle cross, then when we step from this life into the next, we will spend eternity facing the wrath of the Lamb of God. If you add one single requirement to Christ's supreme provision of grace, then you are saying that what Jesus did on the cross was not enough. Do you understand the seriousness of that? And absolutely what He did was enough. We can't say that He needs my help, right? To keep me. He's going to keep you. Alright. Grace cannot coexist with obligation. With obligation. God was gracious to me. This is this attitude. God was gracious to me and He saved me and now I am obligated to pay Him back. Okay? I think for a long time this was kind of how I lived my life. It's like He did this for me so now I'm going to... I'm kind of under this obligation to live my life for Him. But, but that's not freedom in Christ either. You're walking under the weight of obligation. That is not freedom. And He... It was for freedom that Christ set you free. So you need to properly understand the value of the debt of your personal sin. And I want to start with an illustration. So let's say you take a baseball bat and you go out on a walk through a, a beautiful uh, you know, forest and, and, uh, or wherever. You're just walking. Okay, you're just walking. All right, everybody there? You got it? Okay. You take a baseball bat along with you. Don't ask me why you have a baseball bat for protection. Okay, maybe there's some Rottweilers down the street. Okay. And uh, you go on a walk and you come across this old wrecked jalopy, all right, on the side of the road. And for fun, you slam the bat, the baseball bat, on the hood of that car. You just start beating the hood of that car. Okay, is there a, uh, there's a picture there. There we go. It's a good. So look at that car. You just start beating that car with a baseball bat, okay? Well, someone watching you would look at you and say, you know, I don't really know what that guy's doing out there with the baseball bat hitting the car. Um, but he's not really hurting anything. He's weird, but he's not hurting anything, okay? So that's illustration number one. No big deal. They would shrug their shoulders and they'd say, you know, they'd be just like, whatever, and go on about their day and nobody would ever hear about it. Now, if I take the same baseball bat and I drive over to the Lexus dealership and I walk on to the Lexus lot and I slam it down on the hood of a 2021 Lexus LC convertible with a price tag of about $101,000, okay? And I'm just beating the tar out of the hood of that car, okay? Not only would some eyebrows, they wouldn't be thinking I'm weird, okay? Eyebrows would not only be raised, the cops would be called, okay? I would probably very soon be in, in the back of a, a police cruiser and I'd have to pay a fine and I would probably go to jail. I'd probably get out pretty quick, you know. But they might talk about it and be like, that guy is crazy. I don't know what's wrong with him. And maybe the guys at the Lexus dealership would talk about it and tell their families. But that would be the end of it. It wouldn't even make the, the 5 o'clock news, right? No big deal. With a price tag of $101,000, though, you see that the act then becomes more serious, okay? So if I take the same baseball bat and I go to Sotheby's auction in Monterey... Not too long ago, they sold a 1962 Ferrari 250 GTO for $48,480,000. Let's say I take my baseball bat and I just go to town on the hood of that car. Slam that hood over and over. I would not only be arrest arrested, I would likely be thrown so far back in the prison that you'd have to shoot me beans with a shotgun, okay, just to get food to me. Like, like I would be gone. They may not, you, they, you may not ever hear my name again, okay? The, the, the penalty for the exact same act 
was greater each time based on the value of the object or the persons against which that offense was committed. Are you following me here? So it raised each time based on the value. It wasn't the act. It was what I was offending, what I was destroying. So when considering your sin, whether it's a lie or fornication or idolatry, those things just represent the baseball bat. It just represents the act, okay? But the value of the person against which your sin is committed is God, Almighty God. He is infinite in His nature, which then makes the act an infinite act of offense. Do you understand? It becomes an infinite offense. And in order for justice to be satisfied, then it also requires the justness, the justice, the wrath, the the judgment to be infinite as well. Do you understand? So when we're talking about an infinite offense against Almighty God and the value of Almighty God and His holiness, there is no other way around it. There is an eternal price to pay. You might look at it and say, I tell one lie and I spend eternity in hell. The act doesn't matter. What matters is that that tiny little sin that you would believe is so insignificant has offended a holy, righteous, just God, and you cannot be in His presence. And so therefore, you face that righteous judgment of God. And only God, only God in man's flesh can pay the price and face the wrath of an infinite God. That's why Christ came as the God-man. An infinite being in the flesh of man paying the price for your sin and for mine. That's what Jesus did on the cross. It wasn't about your tiny little insignificant acts as we measure them on this earth. It's the fact that God is holy and you fell short of His glory. And because of that, you simply have no place in His presence for eternity without Christ doing what He did. So it's simply pointless to believe that you can do or be obligated to repay God, repay a debt that is absolutely impossible for you to pay back. It's ridiculous to think so, okay? We do not give God our deepest devotion and our highest love and our humble service because we are obligated We do it because we love Him. We're free to do it. He set us free and we get to serve Him and love Him, never out of obligation, but because we are so thankful that we are free from the penalty of that infinite debt that we owe that only He could pay. Third, grace cannot coexist with human merit. I touched on this a little bit. Grace cannot coexist with human merit. And this is the attitude, I'm good and therefore valuable to God, so He offers His grace to me. And I hear this all the time, that God... You are so valuable to God that He bankrupt heaven, right, in order to give uh, to, to offer grace to you. Now, while that sounds wonderful, that is not the case. You, you um, have a simple lack of under, understanding regarding your lostness and your depravity before, before God and that infinite measure of sin against that offense against an infinite God. So... I like to put it this way. If I were to take the top five best, most amazing, awesome deeds that you have performed in your entire life from your birth to death, we pick the top five. God's Word says in Isaiah 6.46, they are filthy rags. They are useless. The absolute best you can do is useless and filthy rags before the righteousness of God. Okay? Merit, just like guilt and obligation, has no place, no part in the gift of God's grace. As a matter of fact, it serves as probably the most dangerous deterrent to true righteousness when we think that we're good enough, when when we think we can do it on our own or that we're holy enough. It gives people a false sense of security uh, when it comes to their righteousness before God. And you have to remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees, okay? And I'm going to bring up two, two things real quick. He said the tax collectors who were considered traitors to their own countrymen and they were hated by their people and usually thought of as dishonest. So Jesus lists them, number one, the tax collectors, and two, the prostitutes who were the very lowest of low in the social ladder in their day. He's saying, Pharisees, you guys think you're holy, 
But these two, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven before you do. So that's where he put them in their place. You think you're so great. You think you're so holy. You think you're so good. And he's saying, this whole religious structure thing that you've got going on here, that, that you know, crying out in the streets and making all these people think you're so holy, covering yourself in ashes when you're fasting, drawing attention to yourself, these prostitutes and tax collectors are more holy than you are. It's this whole religious structure that was false based upon human merit. And that was the whole thing Jesus was facing with the Pharisees and the temple and all of that in His day. And the leaders of Israel couldn't handle being under the, the rule of Rome because they thought they were better than Rome. Like they were God's people. And in fact, they were, but we need to understand the context of all of that. Okay? But they considered themselves as more righteous. And so they were like, how in the world could God allow us, Israel, to be under the thumb of, of Rome? These pagans, right? And that was their problem, is that they were arrogant and not humble. And, and God told them in Deuteronomy 7, He said, the Lord didn't make you like this because you were stronger. The Lord didn't make you like this because you were better. The Lord chose you and is being faithful to you, not because you're awesome, you're actually pretty, you're, you're pretty icky, okay? To use a deep theological term there. He's saying the reason He's faithful to you is because He made a promise to your forefathers and He will keep His promise. That's what he, Paul was saying, all right? So today we hear things like God needed us. We sing the song, you didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down, right? Like as if this, we have this great worth in and of ourselves that God needs in heaven, okay? He, he wants genuine worshipers who know who He is, who understand His holiness, and who, who fall on their face before a holy God and worship Him in spirit and truth. That's what He wants, okay? And there was no intrinsic value in you before. Here's the thing. I heard this once and I loved it. God does not love us because we are valuable, but we are valuable because God loves us. If you reject His love, there's no value in you. The only value you have is because of Him and His grace. That is so important to understand. So here in the opening statement, Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He makes clear where the value lies. You are a part of His church. You are His possession. You are positionally sanctified. So reflect that in your practice. You are connected with every other believer who is called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are called by Him to reflect His nature, to be saints, to be holy. So live like it. He has given you His grace and has equipped you with various benefits to be able to live a life for Christ. You receive the message of grace. He has confirmed it in you. He has sealed you, which brings a peace in you that passes all understanding, a peace that the world does not understand. And you can live your life for Him and enjoy these spiritual benefits until He returns, until He is revealed, whether it's His return or whether you take your last breath and you stand before Him. And God's Word says, when we see Him, we will be like Him. We will be changed and we will be like Him. The true believer can be secure knowing that he is able to keep them and he will be faithful to complete his work in them until the day they stand before him. God is faithful and it is all accomplished through the fellowship and the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. We do not live for him because we are under the burden of guilt. We do not live for him because we are under the weight of obligation. We do not live for him because we are under an illusion of our own self-righteousness. We live for Jesus because he alone has satisfied your infinite sin debt. And he alone unchanged you from the shackles of your sin that had bound you to an eternity in hell. And now you are free from that. And because you are so very or should be so very thankful that now you are no longer facing the wrath of God. You are eternally free. You can now worship Him in a body, in a local body of believers. You can worship Him in your car. You can worship Him at your house. You can worship Him in a boat. 
you can worship him afloat. I don't know why I went Dr. Seuss all of a sudden, but you understand what I'm saying? You can worship him anywhere you are, and you can live for him as a living sacrifice. You won't fall into the trap of habitual sin. If you are living a life of sin, we're going to have a conversation as your pastor, when you place yourself under this local umbrella of this local church, we will have a discussion. And I will point to Scripture and say, either you're a believer and you need to repent and return, or you're an unbeliever and Christ is not in you. Or you're a believer and we need to turn you over and remove you from the fellowship of this local body. And we're going to let you go out there and do your thing. And we're going to let the devil do his thing. And once you're beat up enough, you're either going to repent and come back and you're truly a believer or you're going to walk away and you were never of us in the first place. That's how it works. That's not me talking. That's God's Word. Okay? And again, we won't fall into the bondage of a dead, disingenuous religion where it's just practices and traditions, legalism and the letter of the law. I love Him and my love flows from my freedom. And that's what I want for each and every one of you. You love Him and you serve Him, and it flows from your freedom in Christ. You can let go of the guilt and the obligation and the self-righteousness, and you can just simply love the Lord Jesus Christ in your freedom. And it is a beautiful, wonderful thing to live in that sweet spot. It's awesome. If we walk in that, we've got absolutely nothing to worry about when it comes to our salvation and whether or not we're saved. That is never in question as long as you are walking in that and serving Him. Because the Bible says that He called us. So we are called, and the Bible says that He confirms us. So we are confirmed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you are encouraged by the truth of God's Word. If you're in the Tulsa area and are looking for a local church family that teaches God's Word, then join us at 1030 every Sunday morning or you can join us live online on our Facebook page or YouTube channel. Until next time, brothers and sisters, as Paul instructed, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you.